Welcome to our newest Hearts Unite the Globe hug patrons. Annie Olchek, we sincerely appreciate your support. Thank you for joining our community and making a difference through Patreon. Judy Miller, thank you for being our first Buzzsprout supporter for Bereave But Still Me. Buzzsprout started a new program where you can actually support the podcast of your choice. There are so many ways you can support Hug. All you have to do is visit our website, heartsunitetheglobe.com, to see how you too can help empower, educate, and enrich the lives of individuals in the CHD and bereaved communities. Thank you all for your continued support. One of the most heartbreaking parts about being a parent involved with the congenital heart defect or CHD community is the knowledge that not all of our children will make it. I have made thousands of friends in the 21 years I've been a member of the CHD community. It breaks my heart every time we lose a child and every time an adult survivor dies as well. I think it's one of the things that falls us so tightly together. We know a loss so deep that we feel as though we'll die ourselves, but we don't. We have to keep going. We have to keep our children's memories alive, and we have to be there for everyone else who needs us. Today's Encore presentation is with three very brave mothers who have suffered loss of a child and survived. I hope you'll be as inspired by these women as I am. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, friends, to Heart to Heart with Anna. This is your host, Anna Jaworski, and I'm honored to host today's show, Losing a Child to a Congenital Heart Defect. This is the eighth episode of Season 1, and this show originally aired on December 31, 2013. Today's guests are Angela Roberts with I Have Rights Too, and Heart Moms, Sherry Turner and Derek Lagola. And we will discuss how parents can survive losing a child to a congenital heart defect, whether the child is stillborn, doesn't survive surgery, or even lives to adulthood and then passes away. The show also focuses on how each of these mothers has turned her grief into a vehicle to help others. After the show, you'll have an opportunity to call in with your questions or comments. Just call 646-200-4809 or visit our chat room. Please become a member of Blog Talk Radio so you can chat with us. It's free. There's a link at the bottom of the page you are currently on, which will take you to our Blog Talk Radio chat room. In the chat room, you can post comments or questions. You can still listen to the show while you call in at 646-200-4809 if you want to talk to me live about today's show. I warmly invite you to call in and share a little bit about your story, ask a question, or make a comment about what it's like to lose a child to a congenital heart defect. Now, let's enjoy today's show, and remember, my friends, you are not alone. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna, featuring your host, Anna Jaworski. Our program is a program designed to empower the CHD or congenital heart defect community. Our program may also help families who have children who are chronically ill by bringing information and encouragement to you in order to become an advocate for your community. Now, here is Anna Jaworski. Welcome to the eighth episode of Heart to Heart with Anna, a show for the congenital heart defect community. Our purpose is to empower members of our community with resources, support, and advocacy information. Today's episode is called Losing a Child to a Congenital Heart Defect. While I know this is going to be an extremely emotional show and it doesn't have the happy outcome we'd love for all of our shows to have, I also believe it's an extremely important topic and one that warrants our attention. To consciously decide not to talk about how many children we lose to congenital heart defects would do a disservice to the thousands of innocent lives lost each year. During this show, the last show of the year for 2013, we honor not only the children we will talk about today with three loving mothers, but we also honor all children and adults who have died because of their congenital heart defects. According to the March of Dimes, the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, heart defects are the number one cause of death amongst infants under 12 months of age. A recent Centers for Disease Control and Prevention study found that during the period of 1999 to 2006, there were 41,494 deaths 
related to congenital heart defects in the U.S. alone. This means that for those deaths, congenital heart defects might not have been the main cause of death, but they did contribute to death in some way. During that same period, congenital heart defects were listed as the main cause of death for 27,960 people. Nearly half of the deaths due to congenital heart defects occurred during infancy with children less than a year of age. Non-Hispanic blacks were more likely to die from congenital heart defects than were non-Hispanic whites. Males were more likely to die from congenital heart defects than females. During this time period, deaths due to the congenital heart defects declined among children and adults, but differences between racial and ethnic groups persisted. The median age of death for all congenital heart defects was one year of age. But wait, there is some good news. The United States death rate from congenital heart defects dropped 24% from 1999 to 2006 among children and adults, according to the research reported in Circulation, the Journal of the American Heart Association. However, there are still far too many deaths caused by defective hearts, and that is why our topic today, losing a child to a congenital heart defect, is so important. To discuss this topic, our guests today are Angela Roberts, Sherry Turner, and Dara Glagola. In 1979, Angela Roberts was pregnant with twins when one of them passed away a few minutes after birth. Being told she had a stillborn child was so painful that Angela couldn't cope and she blamed herself for Natasha's death. Angela was afraid she had done something wrong. Perhaps even more hurtful was how everyone seemed to deny Natasha ever existed. In trying to regain control over her emotions and her life, 25 years later, she found out the hospital did an autopsy on her baby and had kept her organs without Angela's permission. She discovered other babies had also been kept without the parent's knowledge. This resulted in her starting an organization called I Have Rights Too, which is a support group for parents who had a stillbirth or loss of a baby. We will meet Sherry Turner and Dara Guagola later in our show. Thank you, Angela, for being on the show. Angela is our first international guest, and she is talking to us from the United Kingdom today. Hi, Angela. Hi. It sounds like losing Natasha was the most devastating event that has occurred in your life. I've been impressed with how you've turned that tragedy into a vehicle to connecting with other bereaved parents, and you've worked so hard to change the law in your country. Can you tell us a little bit about your efforts to change the law in England so that babies who are stillborn would still be given a death and a birth certificate? Well, I first did was I actually contacted all the members of Parliament in Westminster to try and see if I could get any of them to side with us and put forward the option or a debate to try and get them to agree to a birth and death certificate for all stillborn babies. But what they did was, I, did, I had many of them say that they agree with me and liked what, my, what I was doing, but it all boiled down to the same thing, and that was that each MP couldn't, couldn't jump over another one's toes in different jurisdictions. So it basically left them all agreeing, but none actually agreeing. And then one day I managed to get one of the... And MPs, Chris Heaton-Harris, to take it to debate in Parliament, which he allowed me to be present in the gallery with him when they were doing the debate in the room. And I actually heard them saying that they understand stillbirth is a very serious issue all over the world. And I, I believe that we've got one of the highest rates of it, so I've been told, mm-hmm. for a stillbirth and the loss. Mm-hmm. But I've I've tackled quite a few MPs and seem to be gaining more and more now. And can you what is an MP? I'm sorry. It's a member of parliament. Like you have your congress and people like that and Whitehall. And we have members of parliament that represents our areas like Boris Becker or whatever you call him. He actually represents Camden Town. And you've got Keith. Dibble and Gerald Howarth that actually represents all the shop where I'm from. 
Okay. And so in our country, in the United States, our congressmen are responsible for making the laws. And is that the same uh, same condition in your country? Well, they, they have to debate it and decide. And it all has to be discussed. And it all took to like a, a big massive debate in Parliament. And it all has to be agreed by each and every one of them that this is what the law should be. It has to be unanimous? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. That's not an easy task. It hasn't been. No. So how successful have your efforts been so far? Well, so far I did get the debate in Parliament, and I've actually had two, in, well, three invites now to Westminster Hall, where I've actually met through, uh, was it Chris Heaton-Harris, which was the Member of Parliament that took my stillbirth to debate in Parliament, and I met him twice. And I've also was invited to what we call the, the Shadow Health Secretary, who's to do with the National Health sec- Section for us in England, well, in the UK. And he actually seen my paperwork on my little girl and actually said that there's enough evidence there in, to prove in black and white that my daughter was wrongly certified. And there was evidence there to say that she was born alive and died a few minutes after birth, but she's been registered as is still there. And she is one of a twin, a set of twins, correct? Yeah. So can you tell us about how her twin, and I believe her twin's name is Natalie? Yeah. Can you tell us how Natalie is doing now that she is an adult herself? Does she have children, and can you tell us about what her life has been like? She has married and had children. Um, She's had a second marriage, and she seems to be quite lost in her ways. She often says that she there's something missing, there's an emptiness mm. in her. And she, her children, when she's had, she had two children of her own now, and in between the two, after the two children, she's actually lost two babies herself. And were they miscarriages or stillborn or died well, after birth like yours? No. One, they did the, the scan and there was no heartbeat, the second scan, and there was no heartbeat. I think she was about 14 weeks then. So it was within the first three months that she lost that one. And she lost another one, which she was about three months, four months gone, and she actually lost that one too. So this has been a tremendous, a tremendously important experience for you because not only did you lose Natasha, but now your daughter has lost two grandchildren. So I'm sure you feel that pain doubly. Yeah, I have done, especially at Christmas. I often wonder what it would be like if, to have them all around. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, can you give some parents some advice that you have learned about coping with the death, not only of your child, but also of your grandchildren? Well, I believe that if you have any doubts in your mind whatsoever, listen to your doubts. And actually, the fact that the Freedom of Information Act that's come in, that's been a blessing, really. Although some say it's not, it is a blessing, because now you have access to your medical records and you can see what was written in black and white all those years ago, and I don't think they ever realized that we would get this opportunity to see our medical records and see what was written. So that's how I actually discovered that the autopsy was done on Natasha and that the organ had been kept and how they literally just did all what they did with her. I actually, when we were at school, we used to dissect frogs or something in biology. Mm-hmm. And that's what it came across as, like what they've done to Natasha. And always, always don't stand back. Always make sure you, you, if you want to see your baby, request it and force them to do it. Don't let them just take it away. And if you want photographs or there's anything you want, like a birth and death certificate, you may not want it at that time. You may think, oh no, I just want this to go away and it hurts too much. And it does. What you do need to do is to think back because you you may well say to yourself in years late many years later, I wish I had something, which is what I 
I wish I had something. I have got something called the entry of stillbirth, which, because if you've got a child that's born before the time that Natasha was, at 28 weeks, it was in them days, then they got absolutely nothing, no recognition whatsoever. Whereas um, Natasha was 28 weeks and she got an entry of stillbirth. And that's it as far as they're concerned. The entry of stillbirth is their recognition of statistically recording the loss. Well, the, the only way to put it is the exact way, and that is that is how they record the death of children that are born. But there's sounds absolutely awful. There's no death certificate. That, that's a means of statistics, but your baby is so much more than a statistic to you. Yeah, I mean, without these, I never seen my own. I would love to have had. I did beg them to, but that was refused and denied. I also requested that because I'm a Catholic myself, and I was, I was no, I say, very, very religious on it. And I requested that my little baby was given the first right, the last rights, because to a Catholic. That means everything. It means that your soul's been cleansed and all your sins have been forgiven. Yes. Whereas that was refused. And they told me that that was because she was born dead. And then 25 years later, I discovered that they don't know why she wasn't, why she was refused the last rites or baptism. And that's where I think what you're doing right now is so powerful because you have formed a, ter- a terrific group on Facebook called I Have Rights Too, where you're actually bringing together parents who have lost a child to stillbirth or who ha- are just bereaved parents. Isn't that right? Yeah. And I-, I didn't think there would be quite so many, but I've discovered, sadly and unfortunately, as it seems, we're all divided, and yet we're all the same. We're all mothers that have lost a baby but we're scattered all over the world. You are. You are scattered all over, but you have found a way to electronically bring these people together, and I commend you for doing that because I think you've been able to share with each other some of your pain, and pain shared is divided. And I think you've also been able to empower each other to do what you're doing, which is to talk to your congressmen, talk to your legislators, and try and fix the laws so that they give recognition to these littlest citizens, even if they haven't been around for very long, even if they don't have a chance to grow up, they still need to be recognized. I would have liked a birth certificate with my little girl's name on it. Absolutely. I'd like to have seen her too and had photographs, but all I have is the memory of that day in the delivery room. And the memory of the stolen image is uh, in my head of the parts of her brain encased in wax, which was left on a pathology lab room for 25 years. It's just unconscionable. I, I can't even imagine how painful that was for you. But I want to thank you so much, Angela, for coming on the air with us and sharing the stories and shedding some light on what has been done to Natasha so that hopefully this will never, ever happen to any other family. I hope it never happens again, not to anyone, because it's, it's just absolutely evil. It is. It is. Well, thank you for being on the show. And unfortunately, it's time to take a commercial break. But don't leave. Stay with us and find out. Okay, thank how, you. <laughs> find out how one mother has dealt with her grief and the foundation. She started in honor of her son when we returned to Heart to Heart with Anna. Anna Jaworski has written several books to empower the congenital heart defect or CHD community. These books can be found at Amazon.com or at her website www.babyheartspress.com. Her bestseller is The Heart of a Mother, an anthology of stories written by women for women in the CHD community. Anna's other books, My Brother Needs an Operation, The Heart of a Father, and Hypoplastic Left Heart Syndrome, a handbook for parents, will help you understand that you are not alone. Visit babyheartspress.com to find out more. 
Anna Jaworski has spoken around the world at congenital heart defect events, and she is available as a keynote or guest speaker for your event. Go to hearttoheartwithanna.com to learn more about booking Anna for your event. You can also find out more about the radio program. Keep up to date with CHD resources and information about advocacy groups, as well as read Anna's weekly blog. Anna wants you to stay well-connected and participate in the CHD community. Visit hearttoheartwithanna.com today. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Anna. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show, please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. That's Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Anna. Welcome back to our show, Heart to Heart with Anna, a show for the congenital heart defect community. Today we are talking with bereaved parents, Angela Roberts, Sherry Turner, and Dara Gargola. We just finished talking with Angela Roberts about her experience having a stillborn child and how parents can learn to cope with that loss. Now we will turn our attention to Sherry Turner. Sherry Turner is 44 years old and lost her firstborn son, Thomas William Turner, 16 years ago to hypoplastic left heart syndrome when he was 10 days old. After her son's death in 1997, Sherry organized the first Congenital Heart Defect, or CHD, Awareness Day in Massachusetts on February 14th of 2000 at Children's Hospital of Boston. After having organized several annual CHD Awareness Days in Massachusetts, she took a hiatus to continue her family. She was beginning a nonprofit called the Massachusetts Heart Coalition when her second child, Allison Nicole Turner, was born in 1999. Christopher followed in 2003 and Daniel in 2005. Raising her young family has been her focus for the last several years and has been instrumental in her healing journey. For the last couple of years, her children worked with their schools to collect Valentine's blankets and toys for the children in the cardiology units at Children's Hospital of Boston. They also made lanyards for the nursing staff and delivered coffee and muffins. We will meet Derek Wagola in our next segment. Thank you, Sherry, for coming on Heart to Heart with Anna. Oh, you're welcome, and thank you for having me. I feel honored. Well, the honor is definitely mine, and the pleasure is mine. First of all, why don't you tell us a little bit about your pregnancy and your birth experience with Thomas? Like, did you know beforehand that he would be born with hypoplastic left heart syndrome? No, I had no idea before he was born that there was a problem. Back in 1997, the um, ultrasound imagery, they didn't um, do any more than identify that there was a beating heart. Um, And, in fact, uh, two days before he was born, I had an ultrasound, and they told me everything looked perfect. Um, I didn't know at the time that that just meant that they were looking to see that there was a heart, and you know he did have a heart. It just didn't. It just wasn't formed properly. Um, it wasn't until after uh, I gave birth, uh, and I have to say that you know my birth experience was probably idyllic up until the time I found out that he had a problem. Um, I had very little pain. I didn't use any um, medication for managing pain. My husband. Stephen was perfect. Uh, he was a great coach um, and supporter uh, through all of it. And unfortunately, when Thomas was born, he couldn't breathe very well, and uh, they needed to figure out why he couldn't breathe. Um, and while I was recovering from uh, childbirth, they brought Thomas to New England Medical Center uh, because the um, they didn't have a, a NICU at the hospital I was giving birth to. And when uh, my husband got to New England Medical Center, they sat him down in a conference room after having done um, chest X-rays and uh, of Thomas, and they explained to him that he had hypoplastic left heart syndrome and that his um, his chances of survival were very slim. Uh, We were told a less than 30% chance that he would survive, and we needed to make some decisions fairly quickly because he was having a lot of difficulty um, breathing. So my husband called me at 
the hospital where I was staying uh, and presented me with the uh, options uh, that um, were available to us at the time. And what exactly were those options, Sherry? Uh, well, our first option was what they call compassionate care, which is to make Thomas as comfortable as possible until he passed away. Our second option was uh, presented as the Norwood procedure, which uh, is a surgery that's, uh, from what I understand, palliative and um, re- redirects the flow of blood uh, so that the right side of the heart can do the work. And uh, the third option for us was a uh, heart transplant uh, and lung transplant because Thomas also had pulmonary vein stenosis, uh, which is a narrowing. And in between the uh, the veins that go from the heart to the lungs, mm-hmm. so he would have he, he would have had to have both. Um, and uh, after discussing it with a with a uh, pediatric cardiologist and the people that would be involved. We decided that uh, compassionate care was not the route we wanted to go. I, I realize that you know there are people who, for very valid reasons, make those choices, but I couldn't bring myself to do that. So for me, I, I uh, we chose the the Norwood procedure because we we were told that a, a um, heart lung transplant was highly unlikely uh, because donors are not readily available, and it's a tricky, very tricky surgery, and the rate of rejection was very high. Sure. So we went with the the Norwood procedure and um, were told that he still had a pretty slim chance, but it was his best shot at life. You're still separated. You're at a different hospital recovering from having just given birth. Your husband is is with Thomas, and you had to make this life-altering decision. Yes, it was a a real slap in the face, honestly, because we uh, really, up until then, everything had been a very joyful experience Um, and with absolutely no indication that there was any problem at all. So, you know, to have the um, next thing that happened after... You know, I had been I had been asleep at the hospital trying to you know recover, and sure. to be to be woken up and given the, this this um, information in this way was quite a shock. Absolutely. Now, were your parents with you, or was everybody at the hospital with Thomas and your husband? Um, well, my my mother was in the room with me, um, and. Um, my husband's parents were with him because um, they had followed him to the down to New England Medical Center. Um, my father is uh, not doing well his, with his own health, so he he was at home at the time. But you were dealing with a lot of different medical issues, then, weren't you? <laughs> yes, uh, there were a lot of things going on, um, and. It, uh, I, I have to say that uh, through it all, my, my in-laws were a huge support, um, and I couldn't have asked for anything better than the way they were there for us. As, so as a, Thomas was scheduled for the Norwood procedure, mm-hmm. and usually that's done within the first couple of days of life. Is that Was that the case with Thomas? No, unfortunately, um, because he was oxygen deprived, um, he had uh, several uh, strokes, um, and he had to recover. You know, there was a little bit of brain damage done while while he was while they were trying to figure out what was wrong with him, and um, he. Uh, Needed he needed time to recover from that in order to be strong enough to to try the procedure. Right. So what happened after that, Sherry? Well, they waited as long as they could, um, which was ten days, and they came to us at I think it was day number eight or nine, and told us that um, there, there's a, a duct 
in the heart called the patent ductus that they use medication to keep open so that he can receive the oxygen he needs while awaiting surgery. And uh, that was closing, which is what occurs naturally uh, after you give birth. Um, But if, if that closed off, then he would not survive the surgery, so they needed to keep that open, and um, it was becoming, I guess, more and more difficult to do. Um, so they asked us to make a decision whether or not to proceed with the, with the surgery, and it being the best possible chance that he had at life, um, we felt that we needed to at least try it. So this was at eight or nine days of age? Yes. And what happened? Uh, well, they, he he made it through the um, the surgery, and that seemed like forever. Uh, we, you know, waiting and waiting for any news whatsoever. Um, but uh, unfortunately, he he uh, could not get off what's called ECMO. Um, he was on a heart lung machine that did all the the breathing and beating of the heart for him, and he, they, every time they tried to take him off that, he um, he coded, um, which means that he stopped breathing and his heart stopped beating. And they tried, and I guess they tried a number of times to revive him, and um, they had to put him back on the um, ECMO and... Um, come and ask us what we wanted to do. That must have been so painful for you, knowing that the Norwood had been his one chance for a possibility of survival. It was it was very difficult. And to be faced with a decision as to what we needed what we were going to do going forward, it felt like an impossible choice. Um I I uh, still have difficulty with that decision to this day, but we were told that he would never wake up, and um, because of that, we felt it was time to let him go. Um, he would he would never wake up and never know us and never see us, never be able to experience anything other than pain being on ECMO, and uh, we couldn't... Um, sentence them to a life of pain. No, and unfortunately, babies who are on those life-saving machines for a long period of time end up developing infections, and it's just it's a very, very difficult way for a child to survive. So you did something amazing. You started the Massachusetts Heart Coalition. You organized the Congenital Heart Defect Awareness Day, can you tell us a little bit about your journey and, and why you felt it was important to do those things? Well, a- after I lost Thomas, um, I felt lost myself. I I wanted him to be remembered, um, but I didn't know what to do with myself. And so for a little while, I began communicating with people on the Internet. Mm-hmm. And at, at the time, it was a very... Uh, new thing, um, I found a few uh, internet support groups, um, and I spoke with people online for a little bit about what had happened, and there were many people who had similar experiences, and we started talking about the prevalence of heart defects, and I was shocked to find out they were as prevalent as they are. Um, you know, the last statistic I knew about was one in 100 babies is born with a heart defect in the United States, and um, I was really surprised that they didn't know more about it and that people in general didn't know about it. And there were other people organizing awareness days and... Um, I just thought to my, you know, it started off small. I mean, I somebody asked me if I thought I could bring a cake to Children's Hospital in Boston, and I thought, well, that's a pretty simple way to remember him, so, yeah, I can do that. Um, but I felt like I needed to do more, and I, 
I started talking to the American Heart Association, and I talked with the March of Dimes and the New England Organ Bank and the uh, Adult Congenital Heart Association. There were several several different groups that I spoke with and, and invited them to participate, and they were interested. And it kind of snowballed from there, and we had um, several people speak, um, and um, it uh, really did a lot to help me feel like I brought something positive out of such darkness, because if I... Mm-hmm. I, if I couldn't bring something good out of what happened, I, I think I would have gone crazy. Because I needed, I needed, I needed something positive at that point. Um, it was such a devastating loss. Um, and the Heart Coalition, the Massachusetts Heart Coalition, was a, kind of an outgrowth of what I wanted to do. And my husband and several other people around me started pointing out that I had skills in um, finding resources, and that's what the Massachusetts Heart Coalition um, kind of aimed to do, so to help people find the resources they need uh, to deal with um, um, either caring for somebody with heart defects or having lost somebody with a heart defect or living with heart defects themselves, and um, the, you know, I started Grieving Hearts, which was an online uh, support group for those who'd lost uh, loved ones to heart defects. And it, the more I was able to connect with other people the, and help other people, uh, the, the lighter the load felt to me. I felt right. like I was doing something valuable. And you did do something valuable, Sherry. You did. You helped bring together people just like Angela did so that you realize that you're not alone, and it sounds like that was part of the healing process for you. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Sherry, for being on the show with us. I have to go to a commercial break, but I appreciate how you shared your way of empowering yourself and empowering others with the actions that you took after Thomas passed away. Thank you for giving me the chance to share. Absolutely. Well, now we need to take a commercial break, but don't go far because we will be hearing from a mother about how losing a child who's an adult child with a congenital heart defect feels and how she coped when we return with Heart to Heart with Anna. Anna Jaworski has spoken around the world at congenital heart defect events, and she is available as a keynote or guest speaker for your event. Go to hearttoheartwithanna.com to learn more about booking Anna for your event. You can also find out more about the radio program. Keep up to date with CHD resources and information about advocacy groups, as well as read Anna's weekly blog. Anna wants you to stay well-connected and participate in the CHD community. Visit hearttoheartwithanna.com today. Anna Jaworski has written several books to empower the congenital heart defect, or CHD, community. These books can be found at Amazon.com or at her website, www.babyheartspress.com. Her bestseller is The Heart of a Mother, an anthology of stories written by women for women in the CHD community. Anna's other books, My Brother Needs an Operation, The Heart of a Father, and Hypoplastic Left Heart Syndrome, a handbook for parents, will help you understand that you are not alone. Visit babyheartspress.com to find out more. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Anna. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show, please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. That's Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Anna. Welcome back to our show, Heart to Heart with Anna, a show for the congenital heart defect community. Today we are talking with bereaved parents, Angela Roberts, Sherry Turner, and Dara Glagola. We've heard from Angela Roberts about how a parent can survive losing a baby stillborn, or shortly after birth, 
And we also heard from Sherry Turner about losing a child just days after birth. Now we'll meet a mother whose child was born with a critical congenital heart defect. Derek Ogola is a nurse, the mother of two daughters, Ryan and Jara, and grandmother of Trevor Kane. Jara was born in 1978 with multiple complex heart defects and other defects, including dextrocardia, situs inversus, hypoplastic left heart syndrome, pulmonary atresia, and malrotation of the intestines. When she was eight hours old, the doctors gave her a Blalock toxic shunt, and she had multiple surgeries after that, including a spinal fusion surgery for severe scoliosis. Their second daughter, Rianne, was born in 1982, and although they were assured that she was healthy, later it was discovered that she also has heart problems. Jara, proud of her scars, was a champion for those born with heart defects. She was a spokesperson in Pennsylvania and Florida for the AHA Heart Walk. She married Jeff Gilbert in January 2006, but just a year and 10 days later, while awaiting pacemaker surgery, she passed away at 28 years of age. Nothing ever prepares a family for that nightmare. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna, Dara. Thank you, Anna, and thank you so very much for having me. Well, you've heard Angela and Sherry share their experiences with us. What is the worst part about losing a child to a congenital heart defect? Well, first off, let me say that my heart definitely goes out to Angela and Sherry as well. Um, I think what we've gone through, I have to say, everything about losing a child is the worst. Um, It's the knowing that you will never see them or hold them or even hear the words, I love you. Um, And you know that you're always going to have that empty spot in your home that can never be replaced, and now that empty feeling in in your heart. Absolutely. What role do you think that being a nurse played in Jarrah's survival? She is one of the oldest, or was one of the first survivors with hypoplastic left heart syndrome that I had heard of, she was really a pioneer. So can you tell us if being a nurse was instrumental in that? Jira's heart was very complex, Uh, 24 defects in all, and at that time, pretty much we knew about 30 to 35 of them back in the 70s. Um, they did find a 25th diagnosis of WPW uh, a year before she passed away, and that's actually why she was waiting for the pacemaker. Um, when she was seven, I decided to become a nurse because after feeling, I, I just didn't understand what was happening. I think it gave me so much more knowledge to use and a different attitude in the role as her mother um, and a nurse. It kind of put me on the same level as the doctors and the nurses when it came to any of the medical jargon and the upcoming surgeries that she was going to have. Sure, it empowered you. For for our listening audience who may not know what WPW stands for, that's Wolf Parkinson White, and one of the problems with that condition is that it frequently has arrhythmias in the heart, and apparently yes. that's what. Jara was also suffering from, so that's why she was awaiting pacemaker surgery. Yes. The story of any child dying is so tragic, but Jara's story is also a triumph since she actually did make it to adulthood and accomplish what so many parents dream of their children accomplishing. Well, I'm sure this doesn't lessen your pain, Dara. Can you please share with us some of Jara's triumphs? Well, Anna, Jara was... 16 when she graduated from high school. Um, She had actually completed 18 credits in her sophomore year, and imagine my surprise when the school called me in May to tell me she was graduating in June. Um, She also had started an internet group, I'm sorry, called Imperfect Hearts, and she would always say to me, my heart may be imperfect, but I am perfect. So Imperfect Hearts was like the perfect name. She was a spokesperson for the American Heart Association Heart Walk five different times here in Florida and also in Pennsylvania, where we originally were from. The last time in 2006, just months before her passing. Also on March 20th of 2007, um, two months after she had passed away, 
The first day of spring, the Pennsylvania Congressman Tim Murphy had the flag fly over the Capitol at half-mast in her honor for her dedication and, and support to others that she had helped with heart defects. And I have that flag here at my home. That's so remarkable. You don't know many people who have something like that done in their honor, but that just underscores how important the actions were that Jera was taking toward helping the entire world really know about what heart defects are and what uh, what a person can do, how one person can make a difference, whether it's starting a group called Imperfect Hearts or being a spokesperson for the American Heart Association. She really went out there and did the most that she could, given her heart defect, don't you think? She did. She constantly spoke up about it. Um, she was definitely not afraid to show anyone her what she called her battle scores. They weren't zippers. <laughs> they were battle scores. Uh, she definitely tried to get out there and, and show everyone what was what with heart disease and, and to try to get you know more awareness about it. Yeah, and she made an awareness person out of you, too. She did. She did. She went back to school to become a nurse. I mean, wow, that was must have felt empowering for you because now all of a sudden you were on that level playing field and you did understand better what it was that you were having to face with your daughter. I, I did, and it gave me a whole new outlook and appreciation of, of what the heart actually does. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it was just an amazing organ and until you really, truly sit down and see it from that medical aspect, uh, you know, it, it's something. Yeah, it seems almost inconceivable how complicated it is and all of the different things that can go wrong. It's one thing to talk about structural differences, like with both of our children having hypoplastic left heart syndrome and Sherry's son, too. Even though all three of those children had hypoplastic left heart syndrome, each of their hearts looked different. Exactly. Whatever could be done to fix them, it was going to be different. Poor Sherry's son Thomas also had lung problems complicating his condition. Your daughter had electrical problems complicating her condition. And so it makes it so much more difficult to see how you can fix it so that it will work. So, Dara, tell us what advice you would give to parents to help them survive losing a child to a congenital heart defect, even though your daughter was an adult. It must have been devastating. Well, you know, Anna, there are really no words. Um, What I can say is the first years are definitely the hardest. Holidays and birthdays are probably the worst. Um, People say to you that it does get easier. It doesn't. You just find a different way to deal um, with your loss. And you may lose friends over it because they just don't know what to say or how to approach you. But you go on and you remember what they did. You remember their lives and you never forget or stop loving them. You just move on from that and, you know, someday hopefully seeing them again. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's, it's a difficult, very difficult nightmare, I think, that most of us parents never really wanted to be in, you know, such an, an unwanted club. Right, right. It is very difficult. And the fact that you and Sherry and Angela have turned your darkest hours into an opportunity to help others is so inspiring. You ladies give me hope that, God forbid, something should happen to one of my children, that I'll be able to survive and turn around and help others. It sounds to me like with all three of you ladies, that opportunity to help others, to reach out and touch others who are in your same situation, that's what empowered you. That's what's helped you to keep surviving. Is that right, Dara? I, I believe it is. Um, you know, it's, you tend to definitely feel alone. And so, you know, you, when you lose a child, you're searching for any answer you can or, or someone that can help you to get through it. And most people that have not lost a child don't really know what to say so you know you tend to kind of navigate toward those that have Mm -hmm. absolutely you want to be with somebody else that it's comfortable being with them you don't even have to say anything because exactly in your shoes well thank you so much for sharing with us sarah you and sherry and angela you're so brave for coming on the show and talking about it 
I really appreciate you doing that because I know that there are so many of our listeners who sadly have walked your walk and who know exactly how you feel. It's time for another commercial break, but don't leave yet. It's almost time for our miracle moment. Deb Gilmore wrote a poignant and moving letter to her heart friend shortly after Princess Diana died. Deb and I worked on her letter to include it in the book, The Heart of a Mother. When we return, I'll share Deb's essay called My Candle in the Wind. Anna Jaworski has written several books to empower the congenital heart defect, or CHD, community. These books can be found at Amazon.com or at her website, www.babyheartspress.com. Her bestseller is The Heart of a Mother, an anthology of stories written by women for women in the CHD community. Anna's other books, My Brother Needs an Operation, The Heart of a Father, and Hypoplastic Left Heart Syndrome, A handbook for parents will help you understand that you are not alone. Visit babyheartspress.com to find out more. Anna Jaworski has spoken around the world at congenital heart defect events, and she is available as a keynote or guest speaker for your event. Go to hearttoheartwithanna.com to learn more about booking Anna for your event. You can also find out more about the radio program. Keep up to date with CHD resources and information about advocacy groups, as well as read Anna's weekly blog. Anna wants you to stay well-connected and participate in the CHD community. Visit hearttoheartwithanna.com today. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Anna. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show, please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. That's Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Anna. Welcome back to our show, Heart to Heart with Anna, a show for the congenital heart defect community. Our purpose is to empower members of our community with resources, support, and advocacy information. I want to take another moment to thank my guests, Angela Roberts, Sherry Turner, and Derek Lagola. I'm honored to know each one of you ladies, and I'm happy we had the chance to talk about Natasha, Thomas, and Jera one more time. Their lives had meaning, and you have all honored your children with the way you've turned your grief into a mechanism to help others and to raise awareness about issues of importance to the congenital heart defect community. And now for our miracle moment. Today's miracle moment comes from the heart of a mother, and is found starting on page 216, and is entitled, My Candle in the Wind by Deb Gilmore. Matthew is not doing well at all. He had come through the surgery with flying colors, and we were excited. We talked about having Matthew in our room the next day. His heart was fixed to perfection, and he looked great. At 10 o'clock p.m., they extubated him. At midnight, he had his first bottle and even smiled at us. At 2 a.m., he went into cardiac arrest. This was a great shock to all of us because he was doing so well. Dr. Pizarro and the staff maintained CPR for 40 minutes while they got Matthew onto the ECMO, or extracorporeal membrane oxygenation machine. Matthew remained on ECMO for four days and was finally taken off of it. He seemed to be stable and doing better. The doctors did a baseline CAT scan and it did not show anything unusual, so we waited. Matthew then went into kidney failure and had to be put on peritoneal dialysis. After a few days, it looked as though his kidneys were starting to work again, just a little, but at least something. After a few more days, though, it became evident that his kidneys were in true failure. Another CAT scan was done. This one showed severe damage to the brain. The only part not affected was the brain stem. We continued with his maintenance, hoping for some sign of life to be there, and slowly he opened his eyes, and he moved just a little. We were not sure, however, if his movements were controlled or just an involuntary reaction. On Friday, Dr. Murphy had to bring us the worst news of our lives. He said that Matthew most likely could never get any better in his current status. He wondered if we wanted to proceed. He said it much nicer, but that was the bottom line. We asked to have a neurologist come and look at Matthew, which was arranged for us. At this point, we had been told by several doctors 
that when there is severe brain damage and kidney damage, there is not much hope for recovery. You have basically two choices. One, to do maintenance and keep the body alive, or two, to stop life support and let nature take its course. These are not easy decisions to make. Do you take your child off life support and let him die, or do you maintain life support for months or years with your child institutionalized, being supported by machines, risking infection, losing muscle mass, and finally the failure of all organs? There is maybe a 1% chance that anything will ever change, and even if it did, there would be no guarantee as to what the quality of life would be. Then, too, is a possibility that other heart problems might arise from having so much other trauma. Please understand, we have not been given the option of having a handicapped child. We have been given the option of having a child who cannot see, hear, move, or eat. There is basically no life present at all. We have decided on a second option. It has taken us three weeks of going back and forth emotionally and weighing all the options to finally make this decision. It has been the hardest decision we've ever had to make. Matthew was wanted so much and loved even more than that. He was such a special child with lots of laughter and sunshine in his spirit. We do not know how we will live without him. Just going to a McDonald's without him will be terribly hard to do. We have to believe, though, that this is in his best interest to let him go. Sorry, but I had to stop for a while, and it is now Monday the 15th of September. The neurologist came in today and confirmed what the other five doctors had said. There was no hope of Matthew ever getting any better. We immediately called my husband's family and asked them to come to be with us. We asked to keep Matthew on life support until they arrived, and the doctors agreed. The hospital at this time gave us many options on how we wanted to deal with this. We could leave Matthew in the intensive care unit and visit him, or we could take him to our room to hold and love and maybe even take him outside in a stroller for a walk. This is something I never thought the doctors would agree to. Dr. Pizarro said, what better way to go to sleep than to be outside in the sunshine? They assured us that Matthew would not be in any pain. The toxins would just build up and put him into a deep sleep from which he would never awaken. That afternoon, my husband's family arrived and Matthew was taken off of life support and brought into our room. Matthew was held by each family member as they said their final goodbyes. Before we went to bed that night, we asked to have Matthew monitored with a pulse oximeter so we would wake up if something should happen. We desperately wanted to be with him when he left and did not know know just when it would happen. The nurse put Matthew's bed between our beds and raised our beds to the same level. Then she left saying she would check every two hours to make sure Matthew was doing okay. We held and loved Matthew through the night, sleeping in bits and pieces here and there. Around 2 a.m., the pulse oximeter sounded the alarm for the first time. His heart rate had dropped to 80 beats per minute. It immediately recovered and went to 110. This happened a few times more and gave us the impression that he was floating slowly back and forth. My husband then set the alarm to go off below 60, and we went back to sleep. At 6 a.m., the alarm went off again, and we realized that it was happening. We turned the alarm off, but left the monitor on so we could tell how Matthew was doing at all times. His heart rate continued slowly dropping, 60, 55, 50, 45. And then at 6.30 on the morning of September 17th, his heart rate dropped abruptly to zero. Matthew had left us and gone to heaven in a quiet and dignified way. His passing on was so calm and peaceful. My husband and I have a hard road ahead of us. I'm sure that when Brandon gets here around the 21st of December, we will have less time to grieve. Matthew will never be forgotten, but Brandon will see that we have laughter and joy in our lives again. I am so glad that I am already pregnant because I feel that it would have been a lot harder to want to be pregnant again. We have suffered a great loss and never planned to go through something like this, but I believe that God makes things happen for a reason. We feel blessed that we had a wonderful and happy 15 months with Matthew and that we were given a chance to say goodbye. That concludes this episode of Heart to Heart with Anna. I hope you'll come back next week when our show will be called Teens with Congenital Heart Defects. Until then, please find and like us on Facebook, check out our website, Heart to Heart with Anna, and remember, my friends, you are not alone.
thanks for listening today, friends. This is Anna Jaworski, and we just heard the uh, episode, Losing a Child to a Congenital Heart Defect, which was the eighth episode of, the, of Season 1 and originally aired on December 31, 2013. I invite you to call now at uh, 646-200-4809 if you'd like to talk to me live about your experience with dealing with losing a child. But in the meantime, I have Sherry Turner back on the air with me. Welcome, Sherry. Hello. Nice to talk to you again, Anna. Oh, it's always good to talk to you, Sherry. I I still cry when I hear this episode. It's It's still... It's a very hard episode to hear, and yet, and I think you have a message of hope that you would like to share with our listeners before we conclude the show today. Um, I really would like to encourage people who are feeling ready to do so to um, try again, if you, ha- if you, especially if you don't have other children. Um, don't let losing one child. Um, keep you from having other children. My life has been filled so much with my three children that I had after I lost Thomas. Um, I couldn't imagine my life without them. And it was very scary to go through each and every pregnancy, worrying about whether or not um, I would have another child with a heart defect. But um, I really feel like it was worth the uh, worth the stress and the worry uh, in the end, to have my children uh, around me, and um, I, my life would not be as full as it is without them. Well, and I love it. Every single time you post photos and stories about your children, Sherry, it gives me hope. And I just want to thank you again for being on the show. That concludes our show for today. Come back next week on Tuesday when we'll be talking about surviving the teenage years. And thanks again to Sherry and all of my guests. There are lots of things you can spend your tax refund on, but one thing you don't have to spend it on? A new smartphone. Switch to MetroPCS now and get not one, but two free 4G LTE smartphones for brands like Samsung and LG. Plus, you're on T-Mobile's blazing fast nationwide 4G LTE network. Hurry, switch to MetroPCS and get two free smartphones after instant rebate. One heck of a deal, only at MetroPCS. Limited time offer. Sales tax not included in phone price. Coverage and services not available everywhere. See store for details and terms and conditions.